0: Osiris. Count to three.
1: Come with me, and you'll be in a
0: world of. Do re mi fa sol do. You have found Daniel Donato's lost highway. Yeah! That lost highway.
2: Howdy everyone, welcome back to episode 61 of the Lost Highway podcast, the podcast of all things Cosmic Country. This is brought to you by my friends over at Osiris Media. This road needs a place to go. Thank you for hosting the Lost Highway. Our friends over at Topo Chico, keeping us hydrated both on stage and off stage. Here's an idea I want to share with y'all today, is that there is no such thing as days off, but there is such a thing as days less on. And uh, I, I think it's a really big deal how we talk to ourselves. And it's worth a lot of awareness and time and planning and honest, um, critical discussion. Because if you're, if you know, your time off is just as important as your time on. Um, so y- there's no such thing as a day where you truly do nothing. That's not a standard you're going to set for yourself to where you truly do nothing. That's an insult to the amazing phenomena that is the human being, um, this very lucky stone ape. Uh, we don't ever do any nothing. We're always constantly changing. Our psyche is always reevaluating our constantly changing exterior circumstances, and that affects the way we feel internally. And then, therefore, you're reading, you're consuming, you're listening, and that changes the way you feel. And there is no such thing as a day off. There is such thing as a day less on. It's a very relatively simple idea, um, but be strategic with your time less on. That is all I have for you guys today, is that there is no such thing as days off, but a day less on. This came to me after I spent the last 12 days touring, and I had a few days in LA where I was down on a business trip working with pickup music, and I was um, taking meetings every day and every night, and uh, it was just working, doing a lot of work, and being focused and intentional with my time. Because um, time is the greatest currency that we have. And somebody, a friend of mine asked me if I'm going to take any days off between now and the Cosmic Country Winter Jam Tour, which is um, December 8th through December 15th. And the answer was no. I and, and it came to me, it's like, ne- you've never taken a day off, and I've never taken a day off. But I certainly will have time with where I am less on than usual. So... I'm very curious to hear how you spend your time less on. Please do let me know. I think it's a fascinating thing. The things that I'm going to do with my time less on is I like to exercise. I like to read. I'm reading a book called the Arantia book right now. Uh, The Arantia book is an amazing book on spirituality and it's divided into three segments on the history of the universe the composition of it the story of this world and it's amazing and then the life of jesus christ and it's not coming at it from a christian perspective it's 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 not that at all um and if you do want to hear some stuff from a christian perspective please do indeed go check out episode 59 with my friend jude smith for he and i had a fantastic conversation on uh, Christianity because uh, he was raised that way and I, I certainly wasn't. And then episode 60 with my friend Kyle Crownover who was raised Christian and stopped being Christian. Uh, it's a very fascinating uh, pairing of minds there. Uh, again, my friends, no such thing as days off, but just days less on. And one more message for you, and this is a message from our sponsor, is if you are feeling that you are overwhelmed with work and that you do have you know, perhaps too much going on in your life you're too stressed um, or you're not at 100%, you're not attaining the things you want to attain and there is something stopping you, go to betterhelp.com slash losthighway and you will get 10% off. And what betterhelp.com is, is essentially it's a counseling platform where you're speaking with licensed, smart people who have degrees, who know how to talk to people, and how to process your problems from a psychiatric point of view and give you advice. These are real professional people and you're talking with them online. So you don't have to go into the office. Saves you a commute time. It's also a little bit safer than going into the office. Betterhelp.com slash Lost Highway. BetterHelp will help you get the most out of your life and out of your mind, which is the most important instrument of them all, my friends. Betterhelp.com slash Lost Highway. No such thing as days off Only days less on. My next guests today are Ryan Giuliano and Pablo Morales. They are two very successful neuroscientists, uh, they both have PhDs and they're incredibly intelligent men, and I was very honored to sit down and be able to ask them rather naive and entry-level neuroscience-based questions and concepts. I'm extremely fascinated to find the tie between learning and neuroscience and also the creation of music, both in a live and non-live setting uh, with neuroscience. I I think there's a lot of quantitative answers to be found there for rather qualitative abstract feelings that music yields. Um, one of my favorite podcasts ever, let alone uh, one that I've had the uh, pleasure to be a part of just listening to this one. you're gonna love it. Mr. Ryan Giuliano and Pablo Morales everyone <laughs> um, okay, this is fantastic. Do they always say if you're if you're the smartest person in the room, virtual or not be afraid um, and I am by no means the smartest person in the room right now. this is this is quite fantastic to be in this. Space. <laughs> I recently, probably within the past year, I've gotten to the basic uh, phenomena of neuroscience. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been so obsessed with the concept of how does one learn? Like, why is it that when a 10-year-old goes to learn something, it's vastly different than when a 25-year-old goes to learn something, right? And and how do we curate habits and self-awareness to help prolong our learning period? right? And then you discover these really high resolution ideas that are, you know, uh, myelin and myelination,
0: mm-hmm.
2: neuroplasticity, and uh, time duration path outcomes, and how time also acts differently when you're dreaming versus how time acts differently when you're driving. And so I've spent a lot of time researching these ideas. And it's just immensely vast, man. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, and so you guys are, you know, d- d- PhDs in this field. Um, so this is, uh, such an honor to be able to speak with you guys and i'd love to touch on some of these basic ideas then and then also just hear your opinions on on where neuroscience is going and and specifically how people who are in the world of music can benefit just from basic understandings of this Mm -hmm. you know we met when we were doing a a guitar instruction Mm -hmm. this is really applicable to people of your demographic who are Mm -hmm. experiencing myelination before their very eyes by playing on the guitar um and getting better and it's just so unbelievable. It seems like it's a like a quantitative explanation as to how humans are.
1: Yeah, um, I think that's an excellent point uh, regarding the last point you made about the quantitative explanation of how humans are. Um, so first and foremost, actually, before before getting started, um, since we're all here, I'm just going to briefly introduce myself for for listeners. Um, so my name is Pablo Morales. I have a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from the University of Oregon and I like brains and brain related things. So that's me.
2: Related things. That is, <laughs> that's the most fun and vast category I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then Pablo upon inquiring of, about doing this conversation, you suggested that our friend Ryan Giuliano who who is here mm-hmm. uh, also join in. So, so Ryan would feel free to introduce these cosmic country listeners.
3: Sure, sure. Um, I'm Ryan Giuliano. I'm a Ph.D. Cognitive Neuroscience. I'm currently a professor of developmental psychology at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. Uh, Pablo and I met in grad school at the University of Oregon while jamming, uh, playing music together. Uh, we were in a, a cake cover band at one point uh, called Tort. Um, yeah.
1: The, the, the hilarious thing about that is that just to kind of provide a little bit of context context is that based uh, between myself ryan and a number of our other colleagues who were also musicians it was really strange in so far that between all of us we we didn't just have enough to to uh form a band but given our specific i guess musical related talents it was not just any band it was very specifically we had exactly what we needed to form a cake cover band
2: so what um, variables needed to fully qualify kate cover band
1: i think honestly in in our case i mean we had the the basic foundations of like a rock band in this case so uh guitar bass drums someone who could really nail like the the cake almost monotone style vocals but i think it really the wild card it really came down right eric eric exactly our buddy eric who's like the that that special sauce because he um he plays both keyboard and trumpet, which is widely featured on a lot of Cake songs.
2: Wow. So,
1: so it kind of worked out beautifully. And then once we got our hands on uh, a vibra slap, it was just locked. It's like we're done. right <laughs> here.
2: Days of the old analog vibra slap. Now it's just a it's a it's just a sad sample that someone plays on a Nord.
1: No nah, man, you gotta you gotta slap it. That's how that's how you get the real feeling out of it. <laughs>
2: That is one of the most aggressive verbs that one could use in music is to slap it. But it's, so-
1: <laughs> oh, it's it was cool. totally applicable, I think. But no, those are those it was super fun. We had so we had uh, we were jamming for a while as a cake cover band called Tort. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was a um, an effort. It was technically, I guess, Ryan, is it correct that it was like a charity effort? I mean, the great cover up is mm-hmm. right. Yeah, yes yeah, cool. for
3: uh, food banks downtown in eugene mm-hmm. oregon
1: yeah yeah whereby basically the the goal was uh, an event called the great cover-up whereby um grad students form cover bands um mm-hmm. to perform across a series of nights at some local venues and the benefits as ryan said go to uh local food bank charities but uh i mean i'm biased but we killed it <laughs>
2: I bet you guys did. I think it's the thing where you guys, in order to attain a social status of success, such as a PhD, you have to be good at what you do. And I'm assuming if you guys find meaning and intention in what you're doing, you're not going to do a half-assed job at it. I just don't get
3: it. I mean, I think in a PhD program, you're constantly meeting people who are awesome at something else, you know, and Mm -hmm. really good at, uh, you know, one of our friends is an acapella vocalist who is uh acapella groups now and just winning awards and stuff, you know, just, Mm -hmm. yeah, you find people that are dedicated, passionate about stuff. That's why I went to grad schools to meet, you know, people like Pablo, some of our other friends who are just really digging life, you know,
2: Mm -hmm. digging life and finding ways to challenge yourself and fight those, those um, patterns of comfort that we find ourselves getting in. Right.
1: Patterns of comfort. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I think, I think Ryan brings up an excellent point because you know say what you will but getting a phd and kind of like surviving through a phd especially in kind of like a stem field hmm. uh is is not necessarily a trivial task and regardless of what you're getting your phd in, it requires an intense amount of of dedication and focus and perseverance and it is often like a, a struggle to get through it and i think that you know um and ryan feel free to disagree with me here but like the sort of uh trait level that is kind of like more stable sort of traits about a person, the more like trait level drives to do something like accomplish a PhD may bleed over into sort of other other aspects of life, including like dedication or mastery of other things like pursuits, uh, you know, hobbies and things like that. And so as Ryan mentioned, yeah, people in the program that we met um, <laughs> at, in Oregon were, tended to be very kind of skilled, like in other ways beyond academic pursuits.
2: To be expected, and when you're referring to traits, are you referring to ocean the the, the five traits of personality, mostly in the macro sense? Um,
1: in a sense, trait. I'm using I'm using it trait to um, distinguish from state. I see. Um, state being more uh, temporal can be pushed around in the moment versus trait, which is more stable. But exactly as you mentioned, yeah, those those kind of stable Big Five traits are would be considered like trait level rather than state level.
2: So on state versus trait, are, are we noticing a difference in regards to how um, intention with with action can have an influence on your current skill set? Because you're born with with the big five. More or less, right? <laughs> born with a, a a hand of cards, right? So, say you're high in trait openness, and you're high in trait disagreeableness, disagree, disagree, uh, mm-hmm. but you're also high in trait industriousness. You'll probably find certain career paths that are very well fitted for you. But in regards to state, it seems like there's a great amount of effort that we can apply to our daily actions that can and help in turn enhance our lives.
1: I think I think that is indeed possible, and in, you know to be. Perfectly transparent. I mean, I think um, a hallmark of of a of a good researcher or scientist is, you know, being humbled and and, and understanding kind of like what the limits of your own knowledge is. And, and in that spirit, you know, the kind of personality area of of psychology is not exactly like my expertise. Um however, I mean, I think that folks could just generally benefit from increased mindfulness of one's own internal mental states and being a, being mindful and proactive over what is causing or eliciting certain responses, emotional or otherwise, in you and why, and being able to kind of uh, proactively moderate those in order to kind of better oneself or adapt more um, positively to certain uh, life scenarios. Um, Ryan, would you say that 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 connects to sort of mindfulness? I know you're more in that camp than I am.
3: Yeah, I mean,
1: that was very well said.
3: I feel like, um, yeah, you know, when in this sort of conversation, my mind is thinking about, um, uh, you know, people who may have grown up in different environments where you maybe didn't have the time to or emphasis on stopping and slowing down and, and finding that space where things are more chaotic and You know um i think there's a lot of different ways that you can get there to uh you know someone who's gritting it out and finding ways to be industrious in the moment and Mm -hmm. i think sort of you know thinking about music and creativity where you know it some component of that is filling in a gap of what's been done before and i think there's always been a compelling narrative told to us by people who took a a atypical path you know um who were Mm -hmm through a bunch of challenge, but I guess that's sort of what you're saying, Daniel, is like that industriousness and, you know, digging, digging out through like tough circumstance or whatever. Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. Very, very real. It's very real. Even just within the past year of of the humble research that I'm doing within this field, it's unbelievable how much the knowledge of just what's going on within the brain to, to a, to a tourist of the, of the subject, such as myself, it's increased the self-awareness because now, when I'm on stage, I realize that time definitely has a different plasticity <laughs> than when I'm doing push ups at 6.30 in the morning at the YMCA. <laughs> like, and so that's there's a couple large bullet points, and I don't want to come off as a cross too simple, but definitely, no, no. The are, you know, they did not, they first and foremost, they're not as good at cake covers as you guys are. So that's off the table. And <laughs> they're also not as in-depth in their understanding of neuroscience. And so I want to really hit on just some basic ideas of of, of specifically with time, because that's a very mm-hmm. fascinating thing, mm-hmm. and, and, um, myelination. And then just mm-hmm. overall, because you guys work in the software space. I, I know Pablo, at least you do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Ryan, is that do you participate in that space as well?
3: Um, no, I'm not in industry so much, but uh, – you know, similar concepts that we're looking at, you know, just researching them.
2: You know. Basically how, how mm-hmm. we can understand how the integration of, of perhaps AI and an understanding of neuroscience within mm-hmm. offer can affect our subconscious behavior,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: Um, especially yeah. with things such as, um, you know, social dilemma, um, uh, documentaries like that really revealing, you know, chemical imbalances that are starting to be curated in society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm that kind of a thing. But yeah, so I would love to start on just the concept of of time. And so in, in the basic understanding that I have is that there's kind of two subsets of time. There's a time duration, there's a time duration like path outcome, which is very strict metrics of time. So I, we're doing a podcast, we're gonna be talking for 60 minutes or so. And after I might go ingest some carbs and then I'm on to my next task. But on stage, I we were playing last night here in Nashville. We're pretty fairly open. We were doing four-hour show. And it felt like, I'm not kidding you, 30 minutes. Yep. Like quote unquote, whatever 30 minutes means. And that phenomenon to me is worth making sense of. Um, so what do you guys think about that kind of flexibility of time and perhaps mm-hmm. a high resolution? Um, Topics and, and explanations that I don't understand that can help kind of satiate this curiosity.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, one of my first thoughts is like, you know, I, I number of friends who are musicians. I, I feel like musicians, like you guys, have figured things out. You know that neuroscientists have figured out. You know, I'll, you know, before neuroscience maybe even finds the answer to it, you understand that time that that perception of time is malleable and flexible and right. You know, Adding neuroscience to that doesn't necessarily change that subjective reality that yeah. you feel. That you know, um, anyone that's waited tables when you get that dinner rush, it's like, whoa, four hours just went by like ten minutes. And exactly, that's really interesting. Um, I think from a, a neuroscience level, um, you know, Pablo and I both have studied a lot of EEG, um, mm-hmm. so like brain waves, electroencephalography. Um, mm-hmm. Just record it off of the scalp and you know when, when you're bored, your brain gives off just tons of alpha waves um can, I, can, I, part can,
1: part. can I chime in about about yeah. the the frequency just in this case because i had a feeling that this topic was going to come up and i'm glad that this topic came up yeah. but uh in this case um <laughs> daniel you're probably as a musician obviously we're all probably familiar with with the concept of frequency mm-hmm. Right, you know, frequency, and things like that. So the, the same could be said uh, for, I guess, rhythms of the brain, right? Really? And yes. And so in neuroscience, at least in, in human cognitive neuroscience, mm-hmm. um, the brain waves, what we call electroencephalography, um, you can do, not unlike what you can do with music, you can do uh, various types of frequency, time frequency, decompositions, like a Fourier transform sort of thing. And you can decompose like a complex signal, you know, which is uh, that when you see like on TV, people, the like, brain waves, they look like these squiggly lines. Absolutely. Those are um, kind of the the underlying mathematical assumption is that those are the, the linear sum of a bunch of different complex waveforms. Yeah. And you can actually decompose those into their various time frequency components. And in human neuroscience and Yeah, primarily human cognitive neuroscience, we have given names to various discrete sort of frequency bands that, over time, research has demonstrated seem to be sensitive to different aspects of the internal experience. Um, So, for example, uh, we have one to three hertz in the brain, we call that uh, delta. Okay. Four to seven hertz, we call theta. Um, eight to twelve is what Ryan was talking about, which is alpha. Uh, basically, twelve to sixteen ish is like, or twenty ish is beta, approximately, and then beyond that, <laughs> beyond that, we start we start getting the limits in terms of the resolution at which we can capture that sort of stuff. Presently, um, well
3: we could capture it it's yeah it's questionable whether it's motor activity or brain and it's called gamma gamma waves
1: yeah exactly so and up you know when we get like you know to a certain frequency and above we're just calling it gamma but so you know again we're all familiar with 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 music and 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 frequency and sound and things like that and so uh you're probably familiar with a low pass filter the idea of a low pass filter right so.
2: Which in short is how much low are you allowing into a frequency?
1: Exactly. Right. Um, so yeah, o- only where we higher frequencies are sort of shelved off or attenuated. Um, when we're doing EEG, which is you know when we're recording um, the the activity of the brain via the scalp, mm-hmm. uh, turns out <laughs> that we've got a a, a this uh, pesky biological low pass filter.
2: Unbelievable
1: also known as our skull <laughs> <Unbelievable>. <laughs> which which prevents us from non-invasively getting high resolution recordings of very high potentially informative uh, frequency bands and uh,
2: what does that what does that entail potentially performative
1: So uh, there's been lots of work um, Ryan, I mean I think of, I think of a lot of Robert Knight's work. Yeah. So Robert Knight uh, from uh, University of University of California San Francisco, I believe, right? And he has done lots of work in terms of uh, what's called eCog. So so far we've been talking about electroencephalography, EEG, from the scalp. eCog is an electrocorticography, which is bypassing the skull and report and recording from the surface of the brain directly.
2: Now, is, is there a piece of hardware that actually gets through the skull and is is directly in contact with the brain?
1: Um, Put little silicone
3: no. arrays on top of the surface of the brain, but the brain is just open at this point.
1: It's typically done during surgeries.
2: Sure, sure. So, yeah. So it's so is it on the cortex itself, or is it unbelievable? unbelievable. Yeah. Is this, does this yeah. have even higher resolution recordings than the EEG does?
1: Yes. It's okay. that it's that good good. <laughs> straight straight from the tap.
2: <laughs> right, that's the the the, uh, the DI direct. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, yeah. And so um there has been a lot of work um typically from people like Robert Knight and 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 former students of his um like Brad Wojtek, who have um basically done a lot of work looking at really high gamma like Ryan what frequencies are they using for high gamma is it like 250 hertz plus ish yeah it's it's over 100 up into 200 hertz
2: Insane, exponentially like
1: yeah wow yeah so so looking at these really high frequencies and just showing um unfortunately i i'm not too familiar with like the domains of what some of ecog is looking like but essentially getting a lot a lot better resolution at understanding the phenomena at what people are looking at without this pesky skull <laughs> in, in the way. Um, in, in, in fact, like one of the most fascinating experiments, um, which is really just like a method study, It's, it's it wasn't necessarily meant to advance any particular um, theoretical line of research, rather it was like just purely looking at the effectiveness of methods is what we often call a method study, right?
2: Oh wow! So the effectiveness of method is known as a method study. What mm-hmm. a great uh, scientific convention that could perhaps be applied to a, a musician. Why mm-hmm. would I go and produce a song, perhaps is the method to build it from the bass and drums up. Maybe that's more preferable. So mm-hmm. you're looking at a fundamental approach to gather data. And that's exactly correct. If that's correct, and then you and see if there's variables that you can switch to enhance the the result. Yep.
1: Yep. Or or or, or even just to like fundamentally at. A qualitative or quantitative level compare the effectiveness of various methods on whatever the goal is yes. in this particular experiment it was done by by brad boy he he actually had people um this is i mean so nuts thinking about it um it was because it's, it's so fortuitous that that you're able to actually do this sort of method study oh. he actually had people that had a hemicraniectomy meaning that they had half their skull removed no shit. Oh my. Typically, t- typically because of some, some brain trauma where, you know, the unfortunate thing is that if you have like severe brain trauma and the brain begins to swell in an enclosed skull, there's only one place for that swelling to, to relieve itself. And that's through the whole, the bottom of the skull called the foramen magnum. And if the brain begins swelling that way, it's just going to put pressure on your brainstem, which is where, you know, lots of, vital autonomic human function is concerned. And that will kill you in many instances, right? There have been, I mean, there have been instances of you people, people who get in accidents. I think there was a skier who this happened to. Um, brain trauma, you know, they weren't able to do that in time and, and so on and so forth. Hmm. Um, so people that had a hemicraniectomy, because if you take, if you remove a substantive part of the, the skull, the, the brain can swell out that way and relieve the pressure from the foramen magnum of the brainstem.
2: Does the influence of the brain ever settle in time or does it just stay swollen up, up until the until the maturity of the life?
1: I, I assume it would come down.
2: My friend just had this surgery, my drummer in our band he just in the back of his back of his neck he has a, mm-hmm. a rather large incision. Mm-hmm. He, he just had this surgery it's in his recovery time was fucking insane. I mean it was just a month and now Damn. he's playing drums, which is awesome. Sh- Intensive, unbelievable. Just ma- commenting uh, a slight deviation, just uh, on the magnificence of the brain. How, what a wonderful tool it is.
1: Mm-hmm. It really is. And so, so uh, with with yeah, within the same people, people with missing half a skull, and people with the other half of the skull intact. So there was this comparative method study to straight up like in the same people compare like the quality and resolution of the data that you can get by recording from the surface of the exposed brain but also from the analogous sites on the from the scalp so you can so you can compare it's like look what we're losing by doing this look what we're gaining by getting that right so really fascinating stuff but i realized that i have gone on on this long tangent i totally bring this back to time perception yeah right yeah exactly and so i i totally uh went on this long tangent ryan talking about Time alpha, I forgot exactly what the uh, what the thing was, but alpha four to seven, no, no, eight to twelve hertz.
3: Yeah, I I was just gonna say that uh, you know your your brain has this idling rhythm, and as far as we know, alpha seems to be like the idling rhythm when you're when you're spacing out. If you're reading a book and all of a sudden like, wait, uh, what 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 information was even coming in? Like I've right two pages and i have no idea what i've just read right <laughs> researchers have picked that phenomenon apart and it's you know our brain is this natural tendency to mind wander and mm-hmm. um, it's it's like you know time may seem like it's going by much uh slower um you know it, but again it's like i i don't know where neuroscience is really adding in or telling us what we didn't know because you know we've had these sayings like Idle hands to the devil's workshop, or, you know, time just seems, you know, if you stare at the clock, it's going to seem like it's going by really slow. But if you get lost when you're doing something, time goes by fast. And yeah. it's because your, your brain is sampling the world, at, you know, at a different rate. And when we're just in this idling rhythm, um, there's no sensation to really occupy us. And, yep, exactly. How that relates to our perception of time. Yeah, I guess that's a mystery.
1: Yeah, no that that that's damn man. Like, it's funny you you saying that. It just makes me like miss being in grad school <laughs> and, and 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 having like the liberty to like create your own novel research programs and investigate these topics. Damn, it was a good time.
2: <laughs> it is funny you when you're in that like um that consumatory stage of. <laughs> Or whatever your career is, and it's funny how the obligations and therefore the moral center in which you operate fundamentally changes when you have to become a producer for the society that you were once a, a, a consumer just in. Mm-hmm. That's the 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 arc of anyone that I talk to, whether it's someone in institutional finance, neuroscience, music, uh, independent entrepreneur who owns you know dozens of businesses here in Nashville. They all love that early stage of just consuming and having that freedom. And there's something funny that happens when it turns into a career and you can kind of lose touch with that innate freedom. Mm-hmm. And something and something that was brought up here was alpha. Uh, so eight to 12 Hertz, I speak to a lot of creatives, of course, and a mm-hmm. lot of them say they like to let their, di- their uh, mind daydream during the day. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, daydreams obviously just going to be a very low resolution answer that could have a very high resolution answer uh, to help better satiate it. So when we are daydreaming, surely we have a higher serotonin flow. We might have lower cortisol levels, presumably, right? Or And then also that, that kind of thing too. But on what, um, is it delta? Is it theta? Is it alpha that these, that these creatives are referring to when they're saying that they're daydreaming during the day? Like, that's a very interesting thing because it's very hard to get into the zone of what you're doing when you have all these outside variables such as tech, yeah. right? Such as news, such as politics, social media, invading your, your cognitive function. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is that sweet spot? Is it that delta? Is it that theta when you're just in that flow and you're in time is flowing by?
1: I think, I don't know. I think, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, because there's there's sort of two things. It's like, you know, what is what what could be the the neural substrates of this kind of ideal state that may promote things like creativity. Um
2: deep work is how Newport would probably call it.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. Um going back to to Alpha, I just Ryan, I just want to bounce a, a few questions off you just to um, just so i'm remembering this correctly but uh as ryan was saying you know there's this rhythm that our brain tends to function at alpha and so oftentimes in the lab you know when we were looking at at a variety of different eeg frequencies and analyzing data um, there would be references to alpha power so um power in this case let's just you know in, in the time frequency space let's just refer to power as like the strength or amplitude of the signal within a particular frequency band again so the strength of alpha, so eight to twelve hertz. And oftentimes, you know, and and I wasn't doing any of the alpha research on my own, but but in just being there and, and learning through osmosis from my colleagues who were doing more stuff with alpha, you'd hear a lot about alpha suppression. Oh wow. And so Ryan, this is where I need you to correct me um, in, in case I'm wrong. Um, as you were saying, alpha like during idling states or during mind mind wandering states, you might see like an increase in alpha. In fact, it wasn't wasn't it the case that like we can tell, yeah, we can tell if participants are getting tired or falling asleep in the booth if you start seeing alpha rhythms.
0: What? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So 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 you start seeing increases in alpha during like mind wandering and maybe like listlessness. But is if a person is is focused in, zeroed in on a task especially like one that is cognitively demanding, you see this alpha power reduction or suppression.
3: Oh, Theta wow. seems to take over most mm. of the time.
2: Oh, so it's an alpha versus
3: theta. It, you know, that that's one way to that things can be simplified for sure, um, where alpha alpha is like sort of an internal state where you're sort of like swimming in your own brain and whatever, whatever your brain sort of default mode is. Wow. And then, Theta is when you select something in the environment. Um, and theta is something that really comes online a lot. It's been studied a lot with meditation and mindfulness training. Mm-hmm. So like when you are in that, like monitoring your awareness, thoughts are arising, you'll see a frontal midline theta signal right from your, this area of your scalp above anterior cingulate cortex. You probably see a lot of medial prefrontal cortex being activated at the same time. Um, but that theta rhythm has been studied a lot with uh, in terms of.
2: (laughs) I'm buying, I'm buying that poster. (laughs)
1: This is, this is a a lateral aspect of the brain, but if you imagine the midline, it would be around here. Yep. And then projecting it up to the scalp here.
3: Yeah. So like there is some really interesting music neuroscience work that's been coming out on theta. And basically, you know, when an audience is in training to a, Band playing or performer playing, you're in training to the low frequency rhythms of it, the, the three to seven hertz rhythm.
2: And that uh, theta is three to seven.
3: Yes. Yeah. The, that range of. Um, and what's interesting is a lot of natural phenomena occur at theta, mm-hmm. like uh, speech, uh, when people are communicating to each other in sentences, uh, a lot of animal communication and gesturing. Uh, so Some of the neuroscience on this has uh, brought in uh, non-human work, uh, work with birds uh, and birdsong. And I think a lot of times when we think of the neuroscience aspect, we really think about this, these uniquely human parts and forget that birds, whales, alligators, elephants, all these different creatures, like music is foundational to survival and Mm -hmm. identifying your groups and uh, people like, you know, if someone reproduced a song incorrectly, they might be you know, from a competing tribe or something like that. Uh, So, you know, in a lot of ways that this data signal that we use to select music is probably an intensely ancient primal thing that we're bringing in, you know.
2: Just like the explanation for, you know, the Sarah with with nervous systems and and serotonin distribution within, within, you know, very old crustaceans that are very similar to be found within humans, right? Mm -hmm. Innately, if you have an animal that has better posture and, and is operating with a larger, uh, reach rather like a wingspan, that's going to be presumed to be the more dominant, successful trait, um, generating creature that so that seems to be another similarity that we're finding very interested in these in these patterns that apply to all forms of life here um Mm -hmm. neuroscience seems to be a really friendly gateway into that realization Yeah. wow man so theta is where language happens what's very funny about music is that i'm sure you guys can relate to this and i might be i don't want to oversimplify things right (laughs) but the thing about music is you start off by memorizing And then you take the memorized sentences, metaphorically, and convert it into what what I call knowledge, right? I don't know what's happening there. Like, I don't know why when I close my eyes, I can play guitar, and why when I'm playing guitar, I close my eyes on stage, and I can actually play better. So it's as if I'm mm. communicating from the same part of my mind where I store my language. Because when I'm speaking to you guys, I'm not thinking about playing or my words. I'm improvising with understood mouth sounds. And then when I play with guitar, I improvise with understood scalar tones. <laughs> right? And so there has to be a, a, a pocket in the brain where that's happening. And so what we're, what we're sure. suggesting here is that's a theta phenomenon.
1: Yeah. Um. Wow. It, it it is it is indeed possible in that case like i for for me specifically like in terms of when detailing these various kind of like time frequency like named brain rhythms that are and again these um mind you the the ranges of these frequencies that are often named or referred to in cognitive neuroscience they are arbitrary frequencies like arbitrary ranges right. it just so happens that these ranges of frequencies seem to be selectively um, pushed around by, by different types of factors,
0: hmm.
1: um, in my world, in the research that I did, I lived more so in the theta camp. Um, great. However, studying different things that are actually kind of relevant to, to what you were saying, um, namely like in, in the idea of, of learning of when, of when you have something down or perhaps in the case of, of musicians or guitar players under your fingers, so to speak. Um, which is interesting because you you've probably heard the idea of of the idea of reinforcement learning.
2: Yes, indeed. In in a bullet point understanding, perhaps we could explain what that is to listeners who aren't familiar.
1: Reinforcement learning basically learning something through initially through trial and error and then being reinforced for your successes until you have kind of learned right. uh the yeah, the thing that you're attempting to learn. Like so for example um in in reinforcement learning uh if you look at um animal models like like mice Mm -hmm. uh
2: cocaine right that that was the bf skinner trials uh there there is some
1: operant conditioning going on there but in in typical reinforcement learning like there may be instances which is also like like classical conditioning sort of thing
2: Um,
1: if you look at like the underlying neural activity you're probably familiar with dopamine Yes. And dopamine in this case is is a very kind of typical neurotransmitter or or neurochemical that is involved in the reinforcement learning process, oftentimes related to rewards. And so typically what you see is that there is some sort of unconditioned stimulus, like, you know, a bell and then something gets a treat, you know, the, the animal gets a treat. And in response to the treat, there's dopaminergic firing like those neurons are going off and so that's and slowly but surely over repeated instances that dopamine firing stops firing at the tree and starts firing at the now conditioned stimulus that that has that predicts the tree the bell so that is that is you know when learning like simple reinforcement learning has happened you see that propagation of some sort of neural impulse signaling, you know, the desired event propagating from the outcome of the event, the treat, back to the thing that predicts the outco- the desired event. In this case, like the bell or whatever. Um, the same case basically happens in humans um, with with a variety of different tasks. And so let me let me be clear. Um, I, I'm kind of providing here like a a sort of like hypothetical high level example, but what I did a lot of um, was looking at the EEG and brain signatures of kind of uh, performance monitoring and kind of bad, you know, subjectively bad versus good sort of performance monitoring. So, for example, um, I did lots, a lot of stuff looking at decision making and like what's called like neuroeconomics um and you could do have people do these gambling tasks that are essentially like slot machines, right? It's like, hey, there's a known probability that you can, that you're going to win on this time. Do you want to place the big bet or the little bet? Which you could, you know, lose a lot or a little money, respectively. When people lose, they get that feedback that they lost. There's a very specific brain signal that comes out. What
2: does happen in the brain when you lose and or screw up? Where is, is, is that happening in the amygdala? Is that where that, the fear center?
1: It, I mean, it, it, it's, it's possible, but like um as ryan was saying previously in some of this research it's funny there's a paper that i would always refer to by by william gearing from 2001 or two anyways the prefrontal cortex and the rapid processing of monetary losses and gains that's the title of the paper (laughs) (laughs) um but in the paper uh, as ryan was saying there's there's actually a diagram because with eeg one thing that's that's really kind of foundational of EEG is that EEG has excellent, excellent to the millisecond temporal resolution of when something occurs, right? In contrast, it has very, very poor spatial resolution where something occurs. I see. And and there are ways like with other techniques to sort of mitigate that to get a basic idea of where things signals are coming from. But with this sort of response of like getting this incorrect feedback that you weren't looking for, it's thought to come from the same place that Ryan called out earlier, which is the anterior cingulate cortex. Um, in the paper that I'm referring to, they had like a they did their own like source localization and and they put out this this red spot of where they think it's coming from. And so, me, oh. the inside joke between me and my 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 lab mate at the time was like, that's the brain's warm cherry center. Oh,
0: <laughs> well, I'm interested in that. Okay. Um,
1: so but yeah, it's like what's interesting is that. That's fun. Even in the brain, you have this, you have this signal called the feedback related negativity. We call it FRN. Some people are calling it different things now, but that's not applicable here.
2: FRN, great.
1: And so with the FRN, basically, in tasks in which you are you don't know the rules of the game, right? In a reinforcement learning task where you're like, hey, you gotta figure this thing out. You and you need to figure it out by trial and error specifically. You know, typical reinforcement learning sort of thing the only thing that teaches you what if you're on the right track is the feedback that you get, right? And so after a while, you're figuring out the game. It's like, okay, and you get that very, very salient feedback that's telling you correct, incorrect, right, or, or whatever.
2: Very much so. And,
1: and, and so you're getting that feedback, and after a while, you start picking up. It's like, okay, I think I know how this works now. Yes, I know how this works now. And what's interesting is that initially if you look at the learning process in humans in the brain in this simplified sort of reinforcement learning task if they have to do it fast and and this will become relevant in a moment you'll see that the errors when they're learned in the learning phase the errors occur at the feedback and the brain will fire and it'll distinguish correct versus incorrect feedback a very robust difference between the two however once you have learned it or gotten it under your fingers, so to speak, and you no longer require the feedback to tell you if you got something right or wrong, you just know now that you've done it. And this is kind of moving into a different type of task, but the example still stands. Mm -hmm. That, That signal of understanding what the intended outcome is propagates backwards from the feedback to the execution of the behavior. So for example, now you know the second you hit it rather than waiting for things like ah i messed up
2: is that rapid cognition processing
1: i mean it's not a term i'm familiar with but it happens very quickly i mean that is this the name of the signal rather than being the feedback related negativity sensitive to feedback it is that is a uh a, a signal that has been studied for longer called the error related negativity that often occurs within about a hundred milliseconds of the erroneous response.
3: But I, I think what to bring these points together, it's like the, the brain response happens before your manual finger has touched the button. Right. Yep. So your brain is activating before, you know, you're actually committing the error. Yeah. And that expertise being about getting in touch with that brain signal that's before it's actually sent down to the
1: mm-hmm. you to
3: commit and
1: act yeah yeah that's actually a a beautiful point in fact before this i was actually just kind of brushing up and reading some articles that might be relevant and there was one uh where they recorded um eeg from uh piano players Mm. as they were as they were performing Mm -hmm. and if there's a few players i might i'm uh, sorry a few papers so i might be getting them confused but one of them it's exactly as ryan said it's like for highly trained piano players even when they're when even before they're about to hit a wrong note if they're playing rapidly before the literal commission of that note
0: mm-hmm.
1: you start seeing this difference like about 100 milliseconds before they hit a wrong note but not before they hit a right note before they hit a wrong note um which is which is really interesting
2: so does you hear people talk about in on social media, how there'll be a 99 positive comments and then one that's bad. And then with pay attention to that. Are we finding on a, on a neurological level, also kind of the same value center reflected as well?
1: Oh, dude. I mean, that's my wheelhouse, uh, to, to yeah. an extent. I mean, more specifically, okay. So more specifically, uh, like I said, I studied neuroeconomics and the core of your point is the degree to which, um, the degree to which we may selectively pay different amounts of attention mm. to good versus bad things. Mm. And that is something that has been studied pretty extensively. Now, the degree to which it can be extended to the example that you provided is questionable. But one of the most robust findings um, in terms of human decision-making behavior is this phenomenon called loss aversion, right? Right and the basic I, fundamental idea of loss aversion and is 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 kind of captured in a in a in a brilliant little adage and this is done by uh, economists like uh, and psychologists like daniel kahneman and Amos tversky initially in the late 70s and this is captured by the adage losses loom larger than gains ah uh. worded differently if we're talking about something like money or a, a quantifiable good, human behavior seems to suggest that, let's just talk about money is the, the easy example, that losing $100 hmm. feels more bad than gaining $100 feels good. What this suggests at the underlying principle and this goes into like some of the behavioral economics work is that uh what we in economics what is typically referred to as like the satisfaction or benefit that that people receive from from sort of choices is utility okay that we have asymmetric utility functions in the gain domain versus the loss domain the for the lost domain the disutility or badness drops off very steeply compared to the more gradual climb of gain so
2: that's so… We,
1: go ahead.
2: That's, you know, because there's a, there's a stock market euphemism where, you know, it, it the, the stock rises up the stairs and then falls out the window. <laughs> I haven't heard that. That's actually really brilliant. You know, and so it's a similar pattern uh, mm-hmm. on a, a very low resolution level of seeing that same thing. Even when the loss has happened on a physical level or on a monetary level within a stock, it's disproportionately mm-hmm. faster when it falls than when it rises, mm-hmm. unless it's GameStop. <laughs>
1: yeah and i I don't know it's like and and to that extent i mean i i feel that the 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 that your point of like or rather the point of whether or not losses you know bad outcomes versus good outcomes are more salient even if they're like fundamentally equivalent in some instances it rings true in a lot of cases like for example when Ryan mentioned, you know, we we were to this cover band tour, I remember all the good times we had. But,
2: but right.
1: th- one of the most salient memories is uh, flubbing a guitar part on stage.
2: I was just going to mention that I I play with people all the time and 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 record with people all the time. And the thing that they always, hey man, good job, you know, good job today. Yeah, but I messed up that one bar. Mm-hmm. And of course why is that such a thing? So is is that is this ultimately us being aware of perhaps our inadequacies on such a on neurological level in hopes that we just have survival? Is that right? How do you answer that?
3: It's possible, right? I, I feel like it's likely that, you know, when, when you're playing well, you're just so lost in those moments. And then when you flub, it pulls you out of the moment. And that just feels qualitatively different, you know?
1: Um, Damn, yeah, that is a really awesome point, right? Yeah. Um, really is and and the degree yeah the degree to which for example in in my lab uh i did lots of the decision making stuff other folks did lots of sort of more high level like top down intentional what's called cognitive control and how we can recover from distractions and things like that to stay on task and and ryan would you would you go as far to say that Mm -hmm. like playing a wrong note even if it's like done on your own being so endogenously induced. Playing a wrong note is like a form of a distraction that just like breaks a flow that you're in and you have to recover, we had to recover from it. Sure. I mean, I think that's probably the definition of a wrong note is
3: that it has broken the flow. Yeah, yeah. Expectation set before it.
2: The concept of expectation is very funny because there's there's an egotistic value that's tied to any projection of an expectation, but they're not usually sound in their, in their, uh, in their assignment, like to expect that you're going to have a perfect performance, to expect that something's going to go fully well, you're setting yourself up to fail ultimately. So what is it, the sign of a pro? Why is it that when I mess up after, you know, 12, 14, well, actually 14 years now of playing music, it's not as big of a deal to me as to somebody who who is new to it. Say my ten year old sister, and she goes to perform for me the Fortnite song because she loves TikTok, and <laughs> she really like it. Really disturbs her when she messes up, you know. So are we are we over time? Can we become almost calloused to failing? And is that is that a sign of neuroplasticity in the fact that we're actually our brain's changing to learn to fail? Is that perhaps a good thing? Because you're going to fail always. Mm.
3: Yeah, totally. I, I mean, it's easy to explain for someone who's like an improvisational artist like yourself, you know, like the, the professional aspect is like learning how to keep the flow going if the train slightly derails.
0: Yes. Um,
3: but yeah, I think even with the idea of this sort of negative feedback, I think, you know, the brain is plastic. We can learn to reframe our experiences. Um, mm-hmm. This is maybe less neuroscience and more clinical psychology, but, sure. you know, you can learn to reframe that one person who's not enjoying your music, who's not even dancing in the back, you know, and just sort of focus your attention back in on all the people that are dancing up front or something like that.
2: Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, again, it'd be that same thing of that the loss looms larger than a gain does, right? You have one person in the back who's not dancing and you're so focused on that one individual. What a yeah. fascinating phenomenon that seems to be yeah. so wired into us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, those. Are, I
1: think those are both really good points. Um, Robert. But, yeah, th- go ahead. Sorry, right? just going to say
3: that uh, Robert Zatori, who's at uh, McGill University up here in Canada, who's, in my opinion, done some of the best music neuroscience, has talked exactly about that sort of expectation and the reward. Um, you know, we've got a lot of we've got a specific sort of our reward infrastructure of our brain is really set up to expect reward and then receive it. Mm-hmm. And when people are listening to music that is building towards a conclusion, you see like an analogous pattern of brain activity where, you know, our our insula and striatum are sort of expecting the value of, okay, this guitarist, this musician's bringing us up to a crescendo or a climax. And then when we get that resolution, then our nucleus accumbens sort of releases more dopamine at the like the resolution of that Mm -hmm. phenomenon. Um, And it it has
1: has met expectations.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think so much of music today, there's a lot of domains of music that seem to be pushing the pedal down on that quality. You know, I I feel like Nirvana, you know, sort of the grunge music did that early on with the loud, soft dynamic, Um, you know, I'm thinking of like electronic music um, where these big, gigantic sort of like orgasmic climaxes, you know, or even something, you know, like the dead used to do or fish does where they build up to these huge, you know, just you
2: no know, moments. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Like that's the magic of the podcast. It's, uh, it's unbelievable how Lily pads onto one train of thought because we were talking about how theta roughly occurs within, within communication, right? Or theta is engaged rather. Would that be the proper terminology? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'd say so. So when I go to a fish show or I go to a, a dead and company show there are very little phones mm-hmm. being used to receive instagram stories. <laughs> it's almost as if because it makes sense, right? I'm not I'm not using my phone right now to film us talking cuz we're in, we're in a conversational flow. So perhaps the same thing happens during a show. It does. It does. Right, so it's literally a conversation metaphorically speaking. Wow. And so you, you just use something that's really something I've been fundamentally just obsessed with, which is the loud, soft dynamic. Mm. What's very interesting is the, the, the use of compression from the music say in the seventies has drastically changed from the music that we use today. And so the compression levels inherently make everything louder and they stay louder and they're more crisp and it's less of a loud, soft dynamic. Mm Yep. Right, but Ryan, you just brought up the concept of the loud soft dynamic. Um. So, c- could we expound on that a little bit more? Could we unpackage what is actually happening when a a band they probably don't understand. Like I doubt Trey is thinking Trey Anastasia or John Mayer. I doubt he's thinking that. Okay, I'm going to engage theta right now, and we're going to go for a loud. <laughs> right. No. My mind goes. <laughs>
3: I, yeah, I feel like what they're doing is, um, well, one, I think they're, they're messing with that entrainment. Um, I, I know that, you know, fish does this in particular, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm total fanatic fanatic over here. So yeah, just live, your, live your best life, man. Um, but like, you know, there's in jazz musicians do this a lot, you know, where they're following you onto some rhythm and then someone pushes that rhythm outside of the box yes. and, you know, that builds tension. And I think musicians use a language more of tension and release as opposed to sort of loud and soft. And um, yeah, just like working a certain scale up towards where, oh, here comes that that big five, or he's bringing it back to the one, but he never brings it back to the one he's just still teasing around, you know, and then wait for that one moment when the one comes back. And with, with Trey, it'll be like some double stop and like Hendrix chord or something that just feels right. like, uh, it resolves, but it also has this body and greatness to it. Um, so yeah, I feel like, yeah, that's more, more the tension um, mm-hmm. setting up a shared expectation <clears throat> for a moment. And when that moment comes, it's like, if you just isolated it, it may not be anything special musically. But what's special is everything that brought you to that moment so some of the like the peak moments of like uh, peak dead and peak fish in my mind like if you listen to the moments so, like the moments themselves are are really great but it's all about how you got there that uh, gives it the value um, so i think that just speaks to the way that our reward systems really are set up by that tension and mm-hmm. the reward reward we experience is like the sort of explicitly tied to the journey you take so you have to see these bands live to really get it you know because you have to, you can't go on the journey otherwise
2: how are you going to have the metaphysical conversation of music with them if you're not in the room having the conversation
3: yeah if you don't see the the people that are talking to you you watch their body, so you get an idea of what they're contributing and that helps you like entrained to it
2: Right, so our inherent rapid understanding of of, of um, body language, right, and how that's tied to the serotonin, uh, to to serotonin release, that's something that's also being presently um, consumed when you're in a live performance as well. How's that man or woman standing or undecided, uh, whatever? How how are they standing? How are they moving? That's also um, engaging our expectation of what we have to be the the payoff. Mm-hmm unbelievable it's like when i used to play world of warcraft and you got to like level 70 paladin you would you stood like the 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 beast itself was a different creature like the rgp it's unbelievable i'm sure there's just i mean i i can't imagine that there aren't uh foundations in neuroscience that are being applied to um the digital world that we're living in now like oh
1: yeah 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 um it's interesting i mean like wow like it's like on a, on a metaphysical level, like the idea of like expectations in music is is really interesting yes. because I mean the, the, the very idea of an expectation, right that is something that you expect or anticipate or or in some cases even want to happen, mm-hmm. also beget the idea of or the possibility in which expectations can be violated. In some way and in and, and, and some instances that that can be as ryan was saying you know like you know but he never brings it back to the one you know that can be something that is uh. it, like it in in when all things considered like an even greater experience but but yeah it's it's just interesting about thinking about expectations in the in the context of music and the and kind of like these very very naive like thought experiments that i've been having is like Oh, The degree to which different types of musicians or musicians who prioritize different things have different expectations, where the, 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 the same thing may be experienced by two different types of musicians, but in one instance, it is an expectancy violation for one person, and the other, it's not.
2: Okay. Can you set up an example for that? Because when we sure. were talking, you showed me you have two pedal boards. You had like a clean pedal board, a kind of a, yeah. kind of, you had a metal pedal board.
1: Yeah, here, hold on. Let me, so i have so it's funny like i unfortunately i can't contribute too much to like I, I mean i did listen to a lot of fish like early in high school but like i can't contribute a lot to the <laughs> to the uh oh, like my pedal board that i'm messing
2: with right now one sec. <laughs> this, is this, this is a straight up
1: this is a straight up like death metal pedal board
2: it's all black like, too it's perfect yeah. oh it's so depressing it's perfect even a black tuner was a craft great attention yeah. <laughs> i On the try
1: yeah. So yeah, this is this is basically I've been playing a lot of um, uh, lately kind of things inspired by Swedish death metal. Like you know, the, there's a Seattle band called Black Breath that I love, mm-hmm. um, and then playing a lot of just like thrash. Like I love Power Trip and uh, another thrash band called Enforced. Um. Anyways. So. Beautiful boy But yeah. Oh yeah. It's 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 my baby. <laughs> um. But yeah, no, expectations in the context of music is really, really interesting because, for example, we were talking about wrong notes earlier, you know, or, or, or messing up on stage. Right. What, like, like, if you drill down to it, what does messing up mean? And as I mentioned, you know, you have an expectation that you're going to do one thing or your the sounds you're producing are going to fit into the larger mus- musical context in one way, but it doesn't. Right. Um, and the degree to which different people might respond differently to that. Is interesting. Very much so. So, so the kind of naive thought experiments that I've had in my case, um, the naive thought experiments I've had have been. Well, because it has it's been shown that, you know, there, there's actually some funny studies where they're looking at. Um, uh, you know, recording EEG from uh, the brains of, let's say, people who play piano, but people who play piano expertly versus people who have basic familiarity with piano or maybe even non-musicians, Ooh. and they're actually performing, right? So they're performing on a MIDI keyboard. They're performing some basic melodies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this. Uh, the, the the MIDI input is going through the computer, being processed and being outputted to them. Unbeknownst to them, however, on about five percent of notes that they play and th- these are all in c, uh c major a minor so all white keys on the piano on
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, b notes to them about five percent of the notes they play will be manipulated before they come out to them and they'll come out sharp or flat oh great right great and in this case the ne- neural responses it kind of like i'm not sure which one specifically, but there are things like mismatch negativity, you know these things that I'm not going to get into right now. they appear more strongly in expert musicians than in less expert musicians. so the the expert musicians to place that's wrong and just right there's there's a mismatch between the uh, the expected output, you know, I'm playing all the white keys and I get maybe a sharper flat, you know And the expert musicians pick up on that instantly as indexed by, brain response compared to the non-musicians interestingly enough like the it's also a brief stumble in the cadence of their rhythm it's like "Eh, that was wrong you know that that's also caused by that
0: oh my gosh
1: but the naive thought experiments effectively occur to what extent can you push around those expectations of what is right what is wrong for example and this is again naive thought experiment but if you had did a same or similar experiment in an ideal scenario where you compared, and there's it's, it's hilarious because there's actually a really funny YouTube video that basically demonstrates exactly this, like exactly this, and I'll have to find it and send it to you. Wow. It's by this like phenomenal bass player. Um, but the degree to, at a neural level, what are the individual tolerances for mistakes, you know, wrong notes, comparing what? say rock versus jazz versus classical musicians.
2: Different thresholds of of consonants versus dissonance expectation. Bingo. Right.
1: Bingo. And the the degree to which that could be uh, quantified at the neural level, if at all it exists. Um, Like in this video that I was talking about, it shows us, again, he's this phenomenal bass player playing some like, you know, Bach like four finger, eight finger tapping sort of thing. It's like what it feels like to play wrong notes as a classical musician. And there's like... You know, people like throwing up in the audience and stuff like that.
0: <laughs> every time he
1: flubs the note. But then it goes to like jazz musicians and he's playing like some jazz line. And every time he plays like a wrong note, you see like the it, it's all him. It's all like duplicates of him that he's like um green screened uh multiples of himself in. Not green screen is the incorrect term, but you know, every time he every time he plays like a wrong note, you see the people like mm, yeah. they just say, like, Yeah. <laughs> and he just like in his mind, like inner dialogue is like. If I play the wrong notes, they like it, <laughs> and then and then the composer like ooh ooh yeah more of that. He's like I don't know what I'm doing,
0: <laughs>
1: um, but yeah the the degree to which you know the the kind of oftentimes black or white idea of something that is incorrect or wrong is can be can be malleable, right? And the, the extent the extent to which that can be um, evaluated at the, at the neural level which may or may not be dependent upon previous musical experience or even as kind of ryan was saying earlier the way you frame the goal of the music you create right do uh do you value accuracy or or this or are you willing to sacrifice like accuracy and perhaps technical proficiency for this like all-encompassing sort of uh feeling where the where the uh Nirvana. Some is greater than the whole of its parts, you know? Or like, you know, like Jimmy
3: Page or someone like that, who's just, like, sort of dirty. <laughs> he's, like, all over the place. Sort of messing up notes, but it's that feel that he's just, yep. like, frantic on the fretboard, you
2: know?
1: I think Jimmy Page is an excellent example in this case.
2: Oh, my gosh. I mean, you're, yeah. Jimmy Page sets the value center for any young guitarist in the modern day. <laughs> is, this, is this naive thought experiment suggestive of, of the concept that in order to have an accurate expectation delivery between you and your demographic or listening audience, you have to have a shared almost um, openness and value center. Like you have to, like in some way, like I know a lot of people who love Tim McGraw that would not think that a fish show that I would deem as awesome, like Nassau 97, they wouldn't get it. Mm-hmm. Right? Or Europe 72, even though we're deeming that as a fantastic, memorable collection of music, I know plenty of people that are like, nah, man, not for me. Well, <laughs> oh, in, in the very macro, you know, low way of, of saying it, that's kind of is that suggestive of what you're of what's going on here?
1: It's possible. I mean
2: there's also uniform, like I when I play guitar mm-hmm. to to anyone and I any age. Even to people in Wuhan, China, they can understand and recognize that they can understand my accuracy. They can understand my expression, and it usually elicits a positive reaction. So there's an interesting thing that's going on there that I I I don't understand how that's happening. I think Mm -hmm. that has to be almost like a myelin a myelination recognition like you can understand it's almost like maybe it's like zen and art of archery where you can just really understand when somebody who's an executor of a task is having high accuracy and that mm-hmm. must be some form of a rapid cognition of understanding of myelin
1: ryan i see you smiling because this looks like like the the perfect pitch that daniel gave us to for you to talk about that one paper of yours Oh, let's go oh no no i, okay. I don't want to jump
3: into that too much um oh, you got it, man it's so interesting but, but I, th- I think you're totally dead on i don't know if it's myelin or what but it's like it's some sort of indicator the innate indicator that we have that this person has put the work in mm-hmm. like you know like there's a level of accuracy and handling with the instrument that just feels different uh from someone like yourself you know mm-hmm. um, and i think that probably does reflect uh, differences in myelination and yourself, like, you know, you've been playing since you were a very young kid. So you probably fit the model of some of these papers showing that people who have trained musically since childhood have a denser corpus callosum. Um, so you have better myelination connecting your left and right hemispheres. Mm-hmm. Um, corpus and, col- yeah, yeah, corpus callosum is just like a structure that bridges left and right hemispheres <laughs> um, and, oh. Who knows why that is, but it might just be have a brain of multiple hands at the same time. You know, theoretically people talk about like ideas passing from one hemisphere to the other. I don't know if we've really seen that, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, so this paper I was on that Pablo referred to is, uh, basically, um, studying people, uh, who speak a tonal language like Mandarin or Vietnamese, um, there's higher incidence of, of perfect pitch. In people who speak those languages um, and if you look at their brainstem, it's that their brainstem is actually tracking the frequency of pitch better than people who don't speak a tonal language because they have this this their whole life uh the whether a pitch rises or falls can may, conveys different meaning so the same syllable ma if you say it ma or ma could mean mother or could mean donkey um so you Definitely. have to be really careful. Um,
2: and mm-hmm. so anyway, mom's Jewish, like mine, <laughs> <laughs> a donkey. you would not like that. That's not yeah. how-
0: <laughs>
3: so it's like, you know, there's multiple levels to sound perception. And when sound comes in, you know, our, our brainstem literally is like sort of humming, vibrating at the frequency that sound is vibrating at. So those sound vibrations get preserved all the way up to our brain. Um, and then even our brain is our, our neurons fire at rates that are correlates of the rate of that sound. So oh, dude. it gets me in sort of like a big thing, like as a bass player, like, you know, music perception isn't totally just our ears, you know, it's somatosensory Our our bodies perceive vibrations.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And when you see live music, it's a, it's a somatosensory experience of like, those vibe, you know, like Pablo's at a death metal show and the palm mutes are like slapping you in the face, you know, they're violent. Um, you know, if you're at a show and Mike Gordon drops a bass bomb, you know, it's resonating through your whole body. Um, so...
2: It's traveled way farther. <laughs>
1: sure. It's funny, Ryan, what you mentioned, it segues nicely into... Um, man, it's something I haven't thought about in a long time. Oh, great. Uh, but it's it's funny so so there's the idea of of at these various shows or, or or listening to various types of music you or even not even just listen to various types of music but when like daniel i'm sure you've experienced this you probably listened to music fundamentally differently Yes. Uh, from the time before you started playing music to after you started playing music.
2: And it's still an evolving sure. approach. It's very interesting. MC- yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah. And so um, that kind of, to me, the way I've thought about it is like one of the things that was very early on for me that I began noticing about myself when I started picking up guitar, then likewise started noticing things in music that I perhaps had had not noticed before is the degree to which you know you start isolating different instruments and seeing kind of the interplay between them rather than just listening to you know the, the forest you're now looking at the individual trees and seeing how they compose the forest right and and that happened to me when i started playing guitar like oh this bass line interacts with the guitar in this interesting sort of way and sort of that's interesting because It just reminds me, and this is kind of a conversation that Ryan and I were having earlier about, you know, one of the most, um, and Ryan, please correct me if I'm wrong here, but like the foundation of the field, cognitive neuroscience, which technically began at the University of Oregon, (laughs) Uh, was basically founded upon initial experiments on selective attention, right? The degree to which we can willfully right. deploy our attention to different things in the environment and initially you know to, to provide initial context the initial some of the initial experiments at least as far as they uh um uh some of the experiments were concerned involved the dissociation between in in physical visual space of attending to something you are not looking at Right? You can be looking straight ahead like a little fixation cross in these experiments that we often do, but in reality, you're just kind of like passively looking there, but you're really focusing, like decoupling your attention from where you're looking to this other part and maybe your periphery. And if a stimulus pops up there and you're, that happens to be where your attention is deployed to, you respond to it more quickly than if, for example, you were your attention was anywhere else, regardless of whether you were looking at it or not.
2: Is that because most of our vision is peripheral? I think it's seventy percent, right?
1: I think a lot, but we get the most resolution like at the fovea. It's it's the it's the most um, in terms of our uh, the the basic neurons um, that that process like fidelity in our visual scene. That's like a, a very specific point in the back of our retina called the fovea. Hmm. Um, otherwise, yeah, our, our the the resolution or image quality of what we're looking at kind of like decreases. I think somewhat linearly away from what we're specifically looking at, but the idea of like selective attention of being able to like pick out and really begin to like digest music is like, you know, and I think Ryan made such a beautiful point at the beginning of the of this is that there have been so many kind of things that we've learned through folk knowledge of just like the of the human experience that neuroscience and and other sort of um, uh you know scholarly approaches you know have begun to kind of get a more um say quantifiable or objective uh approach on however that doesn't at all um diminish the fact that we've had such you know rich rich qualitative experience that have been kind of around for for centuries centuries centuries. And being able to like, digest pieces of, of, of music or art you know, by selectively attending to different components to appreciate them is, is, I think, one of them. And Ryan, you were about to say something. Oh, I think, are you muted?
3: Yeah. Oh, yep, yep. Sorry, my kids were knocking on my door. Um, so my research is on how the environment and experience impacts selective attention. So selective attention, uh, like the areas of the brain and the sort of networks that come together to do that are really plastic and changeable. Mm-hmm. So they really depend on our experiences in our first five years of life because of the way our brain is most flexible in the first five years of life. But we can continually change uh, our selective attention patterns across our lifespan through mm-hmm. the experiences we have. And think essentially, you know, music fans are training their brains to selectively attend to different types of music that they like, um, to follow certain, to get in train different things, um, you know, humans are unique and that we can get trained to weird music, you know, like you put on Aphex Twin and like bob hell your head to it.
1: Hell yeah.
0: Love it.
3: So, yeah, I, you know, just the idea that the brain is plastic and changeable and particularly our ability to, you know, use our attention. Exactly.
1: Oh, man. And so, so this is the thing that I referred to earlier that I hadn't thought about in a while. Ryan helped me. I always forget the name of this method specifically. Okay. What is the, Ryan, what is the method? EEG, you have a, a stimulus, it's oftentimes flickering at a particular rate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And steady. you can. I'm sorry? Yes, steady. thank you. SSVEP, yeah. steady state visual evoked potential.
2: Now, what is SSVEP?
1: Okay. So, this is actually the, the really interesting stuff, which is what reminded me of this entire like a sele- selective attention related uh, conversation to begin with. So, an SSVEP, again, steady state visual evoked potential. Potential in this case meaning uh, electrical or voltage potential recorded from the brain during EEG. In this case, what SSVEP means or an SSVEP paradigm does is that you know when people do these sorts of tasks that we record uh, EEG from, they're looking. In most cases, sometimes tasks are purely auditory. Ryan has experience with that. I do not. Uh, I participated in one, <laughs> but but I haven't done them, conducted them myself. Now, people are, are oftentimes looking at visual stimuli and according to the rules of whatever the task is, they're responding appropriately. With SSVEP, it's a method that is designed to um, effectively tag, I mean, it's often used in the ca- in the cases of selective attention. It's meant to basically tag visual stimuli on the screen and basically relate them directly to Sympathetic brain frequency responses. So, so let me, let me, let me tell you. So imagine a, there's a a stimulus on the screen that that is flickering at a very specific rate. Okay. Right. That flickering rate is being picked up by low level visual neurons in Mm -hmm. what we call primary visual cortex or V1, which is right here in the back of the skull occipital cortex.
2: In the back, of course.
1: And, and so, What's interesting is that, you know, these low-level neurons will be picking up, responding sympathetically at the same frequency, approximately, at that same sort of frequency. So you can sort of see in in the brain through the EEG, if you decompose it using time frequency and decompose for that, or look for that same frequency band that the stimulus is being presented in, you can see the times that the stimulus is on versus off by the presence of, or the power of that specific frequency that the stimulus is flickering at in the brain, in the decomposed brain data. Now with selective attention and SSVEPs, the cool thing, and Ryan, this is where you'll have to like step in and correct me, is that our attention, and this is a metaphor that I'm not sure how well it has aged at this point, because admittedly, I did not spend a lot of time in the attention literature, Mm. but our attention can almost act as like a gain knob to the various things in the environment that we can attend to. Oh my God. So let me, let me so let me pose this to you. It's insane. So we have, you know, there's a the visual stimulus, right. SSV EP paradigm so it's flickering at a particular rate and you can see kind of the power or the amplitude of how that uh, stimulus is flickering in kind of our low level brain data. Right. If you're look if imagine you're looking at a real-time graph of the that stimulus, you know, the that rate in the brain uh firing sympathetically to that, that stimulus firing okay. rate. Let's just say like 150 hertz. Okay. What do you think would happen to the power or amplitude of that uh of that you know the, that frequency if now as a participant we are instructed to pay attention to it? It must increase
2: in, in, a, in a frightening way. It
1: increases, exactly.
2: Is there a, is there an average rate of increase that's predictable from from variant to variant?
1: That's actually a great question, Ryan. Do you know if in SSV-EP paradigms there's a an average power increase on attended versus unattended stimuli? Um, no, but I I do know
3: that the power increase is bigger for people who have better use of their attention. <laughs> so like. You know, expert musicians or uh, if you took one of these paradigms, someone who is congenitally deaf uh, would show you a larger effect because their visual attention is more trained up.
2: Mm-hmm. So when we, a, when we actually go and see a show that's well executed also within the light production, we're, we're being engaged in, in, in what, what uses low level brain activity right it's unbelievable so really a well executed live performance with production and an audience that has a similar um expectation of accuracy that you have you're truly in a human exchange that is timeless and everlasting oh,
1: yeah. yeah it's it's interesting how those things work and that I think
3: that's a really interesting way to look at it wow so- you're not only getting entrained to the music, you're also getting trained to the sound. And if someone's good at it, you know, like a Chris Kuroda, you're getting trained to this
1: whole like arcade like experience.
2: Unbelievable.
1: What's interesting, and and so thinking about this again, just spurs like another attention related naive thought experiment. (laughs) Um, So a metaphor that is often used for attention, specifically in the case of visual attention, is that of like a spotlight. Right. Right. You know, this like your attention kind of being deployed across your visual scene to highlight or emphasize, you know, the salience of of specific things that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. Now, it's funny because with SSVEPs, and 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 for practical reasons, I don't think this could be done because uh, (laughs) this is actually pretty hilarious. And Ryan, I'm not sure if your lab experienced this, but this is like this huge oversight that that I think Ended right after I started, but like oftentimes, you know, we have people in the booth doing these tasks for long periods of time because we need to record enough clean brain data, you know, without them moving around and stuff like that. We need to record enough clean brain data from enough of the experimental conditions of, of the experiments we design, you know, to get the data that we need. And so oftentimes they're in there for a long ass time. Like they're in there for a, in a in a small electrically shielded booth, effectively a Faraday cage with with this imposing like like locking door mechanism that and they're just in there for a long ass time they take periodic breaks of course and we give them water and stuff like that but one thing that we stopped doing shortly after i started is that sometimes to pass the time like we would just let people listen to music in the booth there's like speakers in the booth right and so (laughs) i forgot who who like pointed this out uh but they're like yeah like the brain data can get predictably messy in some weird ways because in some cases they're like in training to the music that they're listening to and one of the albums i think was blood sugar sex magic by red hot chili peppers right. um and i think another may have been like a led zeppelin album but it's like yeah the the way people sonically and to these sorts of things like these low level like auto auto uh you know auditory stimuli can actually kind of mess up our data. And and the naive thought experiment I had is the degree to which we could use like um an SSVEP like paradigm to in real time right. watch naive versus say expert musicians kind of selectively probe a real time piece of music. Like for example, do you see if they're if they're starting to listen to the bass more, do you see like SSV eps respond more to low frequencies? If they're listening to the whole song, does it become more broadband? If they're listening to like symbols and and vocals, does it become more mid range and very high range? You know what I mean? So, so
3: very, very naive thought experiment, experiment yeah. because uh people have yeah, been yeah. trying to do that and yeah. it seems impossible to do. Yeah,
1: again, naive thought experiment.
3: So this was one point I wanted to to push. Uh, as part of a platform of being on the podcast is, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, binaural beats at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, be. Yeah, so like, oh, you could listen to alpha wave music and entrain your- 32 hertz, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so these, bi- whatever the beats are, they'll put you in a different mood state. Well, yeah, the sound is going to entrain your auditory cortex, um, but it's like, if, if your whole brain entrained to these rhythms, you would, you know, have a seizure essentially. (laughs) Uh, yeah. (laughs) Um, the ability to record, you know, the evidence that we actually have for binaural beats is essentially non-existent. Um, and one of our colleagues, Matt Robison studied Mm -hmm. whether binaural beats actually improve focus and found that found zero effects of it on batteries (laughs) of focus. (laughs) So, you know, it's, it's hard to measure entrainment of, to sound because our auditory cortex sort of points inward to our head and so we can't measure it at the at the scalp like we can the visual cortex or Mm -hmm. the prefrontal cortex
1: yeah because isn't it the case um the uh cells in the visual cortex and these like cortical columns are almost perpendicular to the mm -hmm. scalp so they're easy easier to record from
0: Mm -hmm.
3: yeah but yeah auditory cortex is like if you thought of your your hand you know it's like the top of your thumb in there it's sort of pointing inwards you have this plane that sits uh sort of on the outside if you looked at your brain it, i always think of it as the thumb like that part
1: yeah the, the the thumb i think is a good analogy what what is that the lateral sulcus uh the superior temporal uh Okay. Sulcus, okay. superior temporal gyrus that's hey, right stj man it's I've, I've been out of the game too long <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know so it's interesting so i wonder if, it, if this is very low resolution and macro which I, I i was at this point i don't have to qualify my my perspective right because it's don't worry about it but yeah so perhaps it's the kind of a thing where you hear uh, i have several friends that are you know personal trainers and in, in incredibly amazing shape and i find a lot of similarities here uh between music and, and working out and um so mind-body connection, right? And so in, in in the reference into music, we were talking about maybe perhaps mind-specific um, part of an audio track connection. Oh, that snare sounds good. Every time I talk to a drummer, the first thing they say is, oh, listen, how good that snare It's a 1970s love wig. I'm like, I don't give a shit about that snare. Yeah, dude. <laughs> So perhaps the binaural beats is, is that thing too, is maybe the people that are listening to binaural beats to meditate and to relax, they're just focused on the act of relaxing more. Mm -hmm. And it's not the actual sonic effects of the music because we've proved through naive thought experiments that they're, they're non-existent. Is that accurate?
3: Yeah, totally. You know, the placebo effect is a very real thing too. And the non SIBO. Yep. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I don't want to harsh anybody's placebo or non placebo, whatever you know. If whatever works for you, you know, mm-hmm. engage that practice. You know that convinces your body that you're doing something. You know, or convinces yeah. you. Yeah.
2: Right. That's the that is that to me is still the craziest thing. Is when I go and I think that I don't have a bad performance. I and whatever I whatever think actually means on a neur- on a on a neurological level. Yeah. I don't have a bad performance. Like there's no doubt in my mind. Even if I have a mistake. Even if I have several mistakes, I, I don't let the thought into my head. I simply refuse it. So maybe that's a placebo uh, practice of some sort. PP.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: yes, excellent.
2: Unbelievable. But guys, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I appreciate this so much. This was such a fantastic conversation. Yeah, I, this is yeah, wow. this has been
1: incredible. Yeah,
2: yeah, man. Thank you guys. I would perhaps one day we could reconvene and talk about myelination, because that's something I'm endlessly yeah. fascinated by. Um you know, how you, life can still keep appreciating as you still experience physical atrophy. There's a touch that Eric Clapton has that a man of my age simply can't have mm-hmm. on the guitar. And that's just, that to me just gives me hope in aging. So I'm trying to relate it to a better macro level of a positive existence. I'd love to one day talk about that if you guys would be down.
3: Yeah, sure. Yeah, that evidence may, uh, may have come along in a few years, you know, so we yeah. could check in.
0: Not
1: Tom. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm more than happy to chat again. This is super fun. And again, thank you so much for for taking the time out of your data to, to chat with us and for oh know, being open to chat. Because yeah, Okay. You know what? Full full transparency. I'm not going to lie. Like and being open to chat with us, you know, we're, we're, you know, two, two academics, like neuroscientists, but then like looking at other, other folks you've had on the podcast, like, like Robin Ford was like, ah, ah shit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
2: great man right on no this is exactly what it's about man anything that cur that curates my curiosity i want to learn more about so i really appreciate you guys setting the time to talk to somebody who's a tourist such as myself in this lane
1: absolutely more than happy to do it again
2: thank you thank you pablo and thank you ryan you guys enjoy your saturday likewise take care thank you my friends thanks peace Pablo Morales and Ryan Giuliano, everybody, two very well accomplished neuroscientists who were generous enough to take the time to uh, entertain some of these naive and entry level thoughts I have in this field. And what I hope most importantly, um, what I hope most importantly is that you found some value in this. You found some curiosity that was satiated and perhaps some new ideas that you can take and also Apply to your life and, and make it that much more of an efficient, conscious experience from day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute. Um thank you, the listener, for listening. Thank you, Pablo and Ryan. Thank you, my friends over at Osiris Media for sponsoring the Lost Highway podcast. This road needs a place to go. Uh thank you, our friends over at Topo Chico, for keeping us hydrated on and off stage. And um again betterhelp.com slash losthighway. If you are feeling anxiety, you're feeling stress, you're feeling uh, confusion in a relationship, confusion with yourself in an existential way, depression, not sleeping well, anything that is keeping your life from being as positive and present as it can be betterhelp.com slash losthighway to get in touch with a counselor online, safe data, all the good stuff. Um, the new album, Cosmic Country and Western Songs, is out. We are doing the Cosmic Country Winter Winter Tour of Winter Jam Tour is what we're calling it, and that goes from December eighth to December fifteenth. Tickets for that are on sale now. Uh, we just uploaded a new live video of a show from a show that we had in Richmond, Virginia, uh, last week. And uh, after that tour, I arrived at this idea, which is that there's no such thing as days off, but days less on. I hope you can take that with you. I hope you can go and check out this music and oh, hopefully you took some ideas from this podcast that it's going to make your life that much better. Thank you all for tuning in. Stay patient, stay persistent, and stay positive. And I'll see you next time.
0: Osiris.